That was terrific to see a mother and father together singing the dedication of their son. That was just wonderful. Thank you for the encouragement of that. I want to just say a word, Kate, if you'd come here for a minute. Um, some, some are visiting with us today, and this has just been... Uh, an incredible month in the life of our church and in our life together as a family. And it's going to be very difficult for me to to preach uh, today without saying a few words to you personally as a church. Uh, Last time we were here together was on January 17th. And that was a day in which we initiated some very significant changes for our life together, for our ministry. Had we known at that time what God already knew, uh, that Kate had advanced thymoma, cancer, we surely would not have had the courage or the clarity to initiate those changes and to take the steps we took. But God knew, and he knows what he's doing And he knew that that would be best for us and for you as a church and that that would get us moving in the direction we needed to move. But I want to say to you, the people of Grace, Roselle, that we love you so very, very much. You've got to understand that we came home from our honeymoon on January 11, 1992, to that honeymoon cottage right there (laughs) and it's a good thing the shades are shut because it doesn't look like such a a great place anymore Um, but that's been our whole married life we started there in the fall of 91 getting that house ready for us to move into after we got married and our whole married life has been in fellowship with this congregation here some of you the whole time, have known us, loved us, prayed for us, born with us, you know, hoped and believed in what God was doing through us. Some of you we've only known for the last few years, and we love you with all our hearts. And, you know, just the, the strange and mysterious ways of God's providence, that all of this would happen in such a short time. His, his ways are past finding out. Uh, But we know that though the bud may have a bitter taste, sweet will be the flower. And we believe in the great faithfulness of God. And what a a wonderful way God prepared us for this too. In the month of January, our whole focus as a church was what is the hardest truth to believe about God, for believers to believe about God. And that is that God is 100% committed to doing his people good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. We tend to believe God's 90% for us and 10% still pretty angry with us. And when sufferings come, our temptation is to believe we're getting the raw side of God. We're getting the anger of God. But when we look at Christ and see the blood that has been shed to make that new covenant real to us, we know that none of this is by accident, and we can actually do what Romans 5.2 says. We rejoice in our sufferings 
because we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we know actually that even this is a part of his loving, especially this, is a part of his loving good purposes for our lives. So God has prepared us. God has prepared you. We're, we're so grateful for the kindness, the faithfulness, the love that you have shown us for the way you're pray, praying for us. And we, we have hope in God. We're trusting him. So we are just really, we want you to know you're close to our hearts. You're at, you're at the core of our hearts. Last week was Valentine's Day. You're our sweetheart church. You are the one. We love you. And we look forward to continuing in fellowship and partnership with you. That was an extremely kind gesture that the congregation made last week, too, to reject my resignation. Normally, I wouldn't want you telling me no, uh, but <laughs> I, I thank you for the kindness. And we are grateful to be in partnership with you, Grace Elgin, Grace Roselle, and, and together for the kingdom of God. So thank you. We love you. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to continue in this chapter one more week. I'd like to read verses 27 through 31. Those of you who had roasts in the oven due to come out at 12.15, you might want to try to... Uh, Uh, Delay that a little bit longer. We're running late today. Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, stir our hearts through your word this morning. It is a living word that abides forever. Oh God, we need to live upon your word. So penetrate our hearts. Give us hope and joy and expectation in you, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning I want to speak to you about a four-letter word that many Christians find offensive. So, brace yourself and I'll spell it for you. You ready? W-A-I-T. Wait. Wait. The scriptures make it crystal clear that waiting is an essential discipline of the Christian life. And I just want to turn to a few verses in Psalms and Isaiah. So turn first to Psalm 27, verse 14. We're going to hear what God's Word has to say 
about waiting. This is a psalm we've already read some from this morning. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And it ends in verse 13 with a statement of confidence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Then, Psalm 37, if you turn there. This is a psalm that begins with, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. It tells us to trust in the Lord and to delight ourselves in the Lord and to commit our ways to the Lord. And then in verse 7 of Psalm 37, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Then let's turn to Psalm 62. We love to sing, My soul finds rest in God alone. And it comes from this psalm, Psalm 62. And here the psalmist David speaks to his own heart, reminding himself of the importance of waiting upon God. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then down to verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. There are many other verses like this in the Psalms, but let's just turn to one more. Psalm 130. This reminds me, the psalmist is praying out of the depths of some great despair in his life. And it it reminds me when I was a student at Moody and I worked at Kroll Hall hall Desk. I had the 4 a.m. shift. I thought maybe if I took that early shift, it would get me into the discipline of waking up early in the morning. But it still is hard for me to wake up early in the morning this many years later. But I remember being there at 4 in the morning and I would just long for the sun to start to appear. It was so hard to be awake in the darkness from like 4 to 6 a.m. And so I'd wait for the morning. And that's what waiting for the Lord looks like. It's not just a passive killing of time, you know, just sitting there with nothing to do. It's an expectant, eager, confident hope that something is about to take place because of your confidence in the one in whom you are trusting. Uh, Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope. There's the connection 
between waiting in the Lord, waiting on the Lord and hoping in God's word, living upon God's promises. And then verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now let's turn to the book of Isaiah because this theme is very important in Isaiah. And I want to read a few verses to give you the context of chapter 40. Isaiah 26, verses 7 and 8. One of the descriptions of righteous people is that they are a people who wait upon the Lord. They are a people who are longing for God. So in verse 7 of Isaiah 26, it says, The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance, or the NIV I think says, your name and renown are the desire of our souls. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. And then chapter 30 of Isaiah. Dear brother from this congregation sent me these verses on Monday. and I've been feeding on them and drawing strength from them throughout this week. Isaiah 30, beginning at verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning or in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That's your strength. Resting on the Lord. Clinging to Him. But you were not willing, God says. But then look at the contrast in verse 18. God is a God who waits for His people. God is more eager to bless us than we are to be blessed. Don't think of prayer as you twisting God's arm to do for you something that He is reluctant to do. Rather, prayer is a lot of your heart being conditioned to receive from God what He has already intended to do in your life. Verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. And I put three stars next to this sentence. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. If your heart is heavy over something this morning, I want you to take those words to heart. God will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And then look at what he says. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. What a gracious God. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. 
He's going to show you things about himself that you couldn't see before through the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. He's been waiting for this moment to show mercy to you. He's exalted on high to be gracious to you. And so we respond by praying Isaiah 33 too. O Lord, Be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Isaiah 64.4 says, From of old no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And that brings us to our text this morning, Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I just want to add in the words of the chorus we sang when I was a kid, Teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait, to wait upon you. Teach me, Lord, teach me to wait. Raise your hand if you like to wait. Sometimes. How many of you enjoy being in traffic? on I-90. How many of you welcome that? Is what a great opportunity now to have more communion with God. I can just sit here and wait. Isn't this fun? Or waiting at the grocery store. Um, Nate and I were there, was it yesterday, Friday, and we did the self-check at Jewel. <laughs> and we had a bunch of stuff in the cart. And uh, we make, see, the problem with Nate and me is we both want to be in charge when we go through that thing. So he starts swiping things, I start swiping things. Before you know it, the whole, the whole machine is shut down and all you can do is just wait for the cashier. And it takes way more time than if you would have just stood in the line and uh, waited your turn. Um, do you like waiting for other people to show up for appointments? How many of you enjoyed waiting for your children or your spouse to get ready for church this morning if you were the first one ready? Or at the doctor's office, waiting, waiting. Paul David Tripp says, on this side of eternity, you and I are called to wait. We are called to recognize that the most important, most essential, most beautiful, and most lasting things in our lives are things over which we have no control. That's true. Those things are the gracious gifts of a loving Father. He never is foolish in the way He dispenses gifts. He never mocks our neediness. His timing is always right. And the gifts that He gives are always appropriate for the moment. He is kind, faithful, loving, merciful, and good. And I believe that. Kate and I have been learning a lot about waiting 
the last three weeks. Waiting for tests. Waiting for results. Waiting for diagnoses. Waiting for treatment. And now waiting for the Lord's sustaining. And we pray healing, grace, on the road marked with suffering where we really don't know what God has in store for us. And we're really, obviously, not in control. But we wait expectantly. We wait with hope because we know the one we're waiting on is good. And he does not put to shame those who put their trust in him. Some of you are in a job situation right now that is miserable. You're waiting for something to change. Others of you wish you had a job and you're waiting for one to appear. Some of you who are unmarried, kind of in your heart, are waiting for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and wondering if God will provide a spouse. Others of you who are married are waiting for God to change your spouse in ways that you've discovered are beyond your control or ability to change. Some of you are waiting for your children to get a heart for God, to love God's Word, to want to follow Jesus. Many of us are waiting for the Lord and His mercy to revive His church in these days and to make us a much more vibrant force for the glory of Jesus Christ in this world. We pray with the psalmist, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The Christian life is a life of waiting. I want to encourage you in the words of Pastor Andy Stanley, waiting time is not wasted time. Waiting time is not wasted time for anyone in whose heart God has placed a vision. It's difficult time, painful time, frustrating time, but not wasted. Not wasted time. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. What other choice do you have? What else can you do? If you don't wait on the Lord, what will you do? Three alternatives. What are the alternatives to waiting on the Lord? Whining, worrying, and wearying. Those are your three alternatives. Whining. Israel was doing a lot of that. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? That's what's going on. God, why are you not noticing me? Why are you not caring for me? They are whining in their hearts toward the Lord instead of waiting on the Lord. And in their whining, they are losing sight of God's purposes. Just trace through the chapter and look at all God's purposes for His people. In verses 1 and 2, He purposes to comfort them. He speaks of His desire to comfort them and then the basis of their comfort that their iniquity has been pardoned. That their warfare with God has been ended. That the payment in full has been made for their sins. It is finished on the cross. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We read in the hospital room a couple weeks ago a word by Tim Keller. He said, one ounce of sin can harm us more than ten tons of suffering. It's a good word. 
because sin ruins our souls, while suffering, if handled well, only makes us more Christ-like and joyful. God, God says, I have dealt with your most terrible disease of sin, and now you can trust me to comfort you in all your afflictions. But when we're whining, when we're crying out, we forget that, and we become inconsolable. And in our despair, we turn our backs on the Lord. They were forgetting verses 3-5 through that God through their sufferings was leveling the mountains of pride and raising up the valleys of depression and making a smooth way so that the glory of the Lord Jesus could be revealed in their lives. They were forgetting that God wanted to reveal His glory in their sufferings. That's one of the reasons as we go through this path we're trying not to focus so much on the why questions. Why me? Why now? Why this particular trial? And instead, we're, we're wanting God by His grace to help us to ask the who questions. Who are you, Lord? What do you want to show us about yourself? How do you want to use us for your glory as we go through this? Because we know, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. But when we're whining, we forget that. We forget verses 6-8 through eight, that all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. But the Word of our God abides forever. And God brings these sufferings, God brings these trials into our lives to teach us to live upon His Word. To feast upon His Word alone. And then verses 9-11, through 11, He uses these trials to get us up on the high mountain where we can witness for Him. And say to many, many people, behold your God. Through suffering, God puts you on a platform. And who you are in Christ starts to shine. And you get opportunities to speak of Him. But when we whine and complain and don't wait on the Lord, we forget all these gracious purposes. Then the other thing we do is we worry. We worry about all kinds of things that are beyond our control. I want to read to you a little letter that Martin Luther wrote to his fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon, and his faith was faltering. How would you like to receive a letter like this from one of your pastors or an elder or a friend? He said, Philip, I pray for you very earnestly, and I am deeply pained that you keep sucking up cares like a leech and thus rendering my prayers vain. Christ knows whether it comes from stupidity or the Spirit. But I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause. Indeed, I am more hopeful than I expected to be. God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold His cause when it is falling, or to raise it up again when it has fallen, or to move it forward when it is standing. If we are not worthy instruments to accomplish His purpose, He will find others. If we are not strengthened by His promises, where in the world are the people to whom these promises apply? But more of this another time. After all, my writing this is like pouring water into the sea. It's getting nowhere. Because you become inconsolable. You're so filled with worries and cares. You've forgotten the greatness of our God. And so from... Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 26, he just shows us how great is our God. 
He can take care of us. Look at verse 12. He is measured. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I read somewhere that 70% of the earth's surface is covered in water. And at its deepest point, it's six miles deep. How many gallons of water is that? And God can hold it all in the hollow of his hand. Just like that. It's nothing. And then he says, he measures the heavens with a span. This is a span. Seven, eight inches. God's hand stretched out can measure the whole universe. That's how vast and immense he is. And then it says in verse 12, He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Those massive rock formations. God says, I can, me- I can measure that. I can manage that. I know how much that weighs. It's nothing. And then he compares the greatness of God to the greatness of men. Beginning in verses 13 through 24. And the first thing he tells us is, listen, God does not need our advice. He does not need our counsel. Verse 13, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. If you took all the trees of Lebanon and made an altar and burned to sacrifice with all its beasts, that would be insufficient because there's only one sacrifice that's acceptable to God. And that's the sacrifice we read about in Psalm 22 where his own son laid himself down on the cross for our sins. In verses 17 and following, he talks about all the nations in all their pomp and in all their glory and all the leaders of the nations who rise and fall. And God says of all of them, verse 17, they're less than nothing and emptiness. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And he brings it to a conclusion in verses 25 and 26, to whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. What God is saying here is, you're so worried, you're so fearful, what you need to do is you need to just step back and be still and behold me. Look at my greatness, my infinity, my power, my wisdom, my sovereignty, my goodness. And let that settle your heart, calm your heart. Do you think God is able to handle the things that burden you? God able to handle Kate's disease? Is God able to take care of our church's needs, our future? course he is. None of this is too difficult for him. The other alternative if we don't wait on the Lord is just simply weariness. Our strength has a short shelf life. 
Look at verse 30. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. I looked at uh, the news online about the Olympics. And I found this little Twitter remark by Apollo Ono, great athlete. And you know what it said? Trying to get some sleep. Trying to get some sleep. Here's this great athlete with such strength. He needs to get to sleep. He needs to go to bed at night. The strongest of our young men fall exhausted. If you don't put those Olympic athletes to bed, they're not going to be able to to ice skate or even to walk. We spend a third of our lives in bed. And then we die. And weariness will surely come to us if we don't wait on the Lord. God calls us to pour ourselves out for Him, but we need to know where our source of strength lies. We need to know how to get replenished. And so God gives us these reasons to trust Him, these reasons to wait on Him, and then He gives us two special incentives. And I want to conclude by pointing these two incentives out. Why should I wait on the Lord? And they're in verses 28 through 31. Number one, because of who God is. Because of who He is. Verse 28 is like God's final, in a nutshell, theology. If you missed everything He said in the previous verses, He says, here I'm going to tell you one more time. He gets personal in verse 28. Before He was speaking in the plural pronoun, you, you all. Now He says, you. Personally, singularly. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you missed who God is? Have you forgotten Him? And he tells us four things about God. If you, if you say all that other stuff's too much for me to comprehend, I just need it stated simply, in a nutshell, who is my God? Here's four things in verse 28 that you can lay hold of. Number one, the Lord is the everlasting God. He is eternal. We are a moment. You are forever. Lord of the ages. God before time. We get so wrapped up in the right now of our burdens and our trials, so concerned, so in a panic about what's happening in our lives, we're tempted to sin even, to turn away from God because we, all we can see is right now. Ray Orland said in one of his uh, works, we always sin too soon. Always. All we can see is right now. The Lord is the everlasting God. He is not bound by time. He is never in an emergency. He's never in a hurry. Never in a panic. And if you really want to make God laugh, give Him a deadline. Tell Him you've got to get it done by such and such a point. He is eternal the everlasting God. Secondly, He is the creator of the ends of the earth. The boundaries of the universe He created. How long would it take you to get to the ends of the earth? I read this statement. It said, you could never live long enough to reach the limits of outer space even if you flew at the speed of light. In fact, it would take you more than 14,000 years just to escape our Milky Way galaxy 
and the earth is already on the edge of it. But God created it all. There's not one square inch in all the universe where he is not. So no matter where you find yourself, whether you're in a lonely, desolate place, or whether you're in an ICU unit, wherever you find yourself, God is already there, present, with you, ready to bless you, ready to minister to you. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. There's nowhere you can flee from his presence. And the third thing he says about God is that he is always at work. He is never tired. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He does not faint or grow weary. God never needs to get replenished. He is always alert. He is always able. He is always alive and fresh and ready to meet our needs. And then the fourth thing he tells us is that God's understanding is unsearchable. This quote was very encouraging to me this week. If our lives are not exactly the way we would like them to be, we can be sure that they are precisely the way God wants them to be. He knows what he's doing. So we don't live by explanations. We live by promises. We don't figure out God by our brains. We submit to him by faith. That's who God is. Everlasting, creator of the ends of the earth, never faints or grows weary, understanding is unsearchable, and then look at what God does. Verse 29. Just savor this. Let this just marinate on this. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Who gives power to the faint? The everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. The one who's never tired or weary. The one who's full of infinite wisdom. When I am weak, when I'm fearful, when I feel like I've run out of strength, I can look to him and he will impart to me a measure of his inexhaustible power. I can draw upon the inexhaustible strength of an eternal, infinite God when I am weary and weak. That's astounding. That's where our strength lies. In our weakness, he exalts his strength and power. People often ask pastors, how's your church doing? How are you guys doing these days? What are you hoping to accomplish? What would you think of a pastor who said, I think our church is too strong. One of my goals for our church this year is that we would become weaker. Is that the kind of church you'd want to join? You're in that kind of church right now. We need to become weaker. To him who has no might, he increases strength, it says. Not to the one who's strong, but to the one who realizes I'm weak. Not to the one who has everything he needs, but to the one who says, God, I am desperate. Help me be pouring into me the strength that I lack. 
before we can grow stronger in the Christian life, we must become weaker. And it's when we're weak that we learn to wait on the Lord. What will God do for those who wait on Him? Isaiah 40 says He will do four things. First of all, He will renew your strength. Secondly, He will cause you to mount up with wings like eagles. Have you ever noticed that eagles can fly higher than any of the other birds and they go to places where none of the rest of them go? And they're usually alone. You never see a flock of eagles. They're solitary in the heights. If you then have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And because the eagles go closer to the sun than other birds and gaze at it more intently, they also have a keen vision and can see more than anyone else. God will cause those who wait on Him God will cause those who look expectantly and confidently to Him. He will give you a vision to see more of Him than you would have if you didn't wait. But then He brings you down to earth. We can't always stay up there soaring like an eagle. We've got to come down here and we've got to run a race with endurance. God says you'll run and not be weary. But that's not the end of the Christian life either. It's not all running. You know what the best metaphor of the Christian life is? walking. Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. God called Abraham, I'm the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Just keep walking. Just keep pressing on. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. Just put one foot in front of the next and not give up. Endure. They who wait for the Lord shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. God, we pray, teach us to look expectantly to you, to wait on you, to depend on you. Lord, we can't see the future. God, we are faced with many trials right now. We are often weak and feeling heavy laden. We thank you, God, for the strength that you give. And we thank you for the Savior who from the cross waited and trusted himself to you, the God who judges justly. And we thank you that he was not put to shame, that you raised him from the dead and exalted him at the highest place. May we learn to find our strength in you as Jesus did. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.